Thank you so much. Friends, will you pray with me? Let the good news come in power and in truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Today we finish our series, The Advent of Peace. Advent means coming in Latin and invites us on a journey of expectation and hope. The goal of this season is to make us ready to receive the message of Christmas, to engage us and to give purpose to our lives. Over the past three weeks, we have looked at different aspects and ways to understand peace. Today, we look at peace in the form of a person. Our scripture lesson today is only one verse, and it is as straightforward as scripture can get, I suppose. Isaiah 9-6 is sung by our chamber choir using Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and authority rests upon his shoulder, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of our scripture lessons this Advent season were taken from the prophet Isaiah. You can divide the book of Isaiah into two sections, the first 39 chapters and the last 27. The first half of Isaiah is about Israel's need for a savior. The people were in a mess. They had assumed the Messiah would be a king to rule in power, not a suffering servant, as we see in the anointed Christ. Israel became divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern kingdom fell before the southern, but they both were in exile in Isaiah's time. The northern kingdom had 19 kings, and not one of them was good. And the southern kingdom had 20 kings, and only eight of them were good kings, and only half of the eight finished well. God sent Isaiah to prophesy to both kingdoms. The first 39 chapters present the bad news with snippets of good news, like today's verse. Isaiah's prophecy includes images of darkness and pictures of devastation because of Israel's disobedience. When they chose not to live in the holiness to which God had called them, they experienced God's wrath and judgment. The opening chapters describe utter estrangement, and we get a clear picture of the world's need for a savior. The people were lost. Darkness, rebellion, death, Lost describes the conditions to which Isaiah brought a prophetic and hopeful voice. His message to God's people, who were, as it says in chapter 3, verse 8, defying God's glorious presence. His message was to confront the people with the dire consequences of their rebellion against God a God who, despite their disobedience, had remained faithful to them. 
Inserted in the early chapters of Isaiah in the midst of the bad news is good news and a promise. Isaiah describes the righteous reign of a coming king and how he will rule. Isaiah announces a divine birth. Israel needed a savior then, and so do we today. Embedded in the bad news is the best news. The unto us God is a loving God who gives to us, gives us a gift, a child, a son, a savior, the incarnation of God's love for us. As I consider this verse about the unto us God, I'm struck by God's relentless pursuit of his people. He is a God who is for us. As we read in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? This unto us God has given us not a something, but a someone. And Isaiah, speaking for God, lists four names or characteristics of this someone. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now last week, Mike Morgan preached on Isaiah chapter 60, and he mentioned that Dr. Richard Mao had written an entire book on that one chapter, and I'm going to one-up Mike. Biblical scholar Walter Bergman has written an entire book devoted to this one verse, and specifically to those four names, and I commend it to you. We have focused on dimensions of peace this Advent, and now peace is a prince who comes as an infant to bring the message of God's redeeming love. We've heard the news before, but what difference does it make to us now, today? In the midst of this season, in the midst of busyness and merrymaking and heightened stress, how does peace settle into where you live? Are you at peace with the world, with yourself, with your life, and with God? What does it mean that our unto us God has given us the Prince of Peace? We hear of distant wars. What is happening in Aleppo is unspeakable. The nightly news is full of reports of violence even in our own city and many of us harbor our own pains or hurts or fears. So the very peace we long for seems impossible to receive. And yet, God wants us to know the Prince of Peace and be at peace. The word peace is mentioned over 300 times in scripture. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 wrote about a new life in Christ. Turn with me in your pew Bibles, if you would. It's on page 958, Colossians 3. And we're going to look at verses starting at verse 12. Page 958, chapter 3, Colossians, verse 12. Just follow as I read. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bear with one another, and if everyone, anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. What does ruling in a heart of peace look like? The unto us God who is God with us, Emmanuel, longs for us to live a life with God. God with us and us with God. How is your life with God this season? How have you been with God even this past week? Do you know people who live at and with peace? What does it look like in them? My hunch is those we think of as men and women of peace are people who live a life closely aligned with God. I know that many of you fit that description. There are many symbols of peace, but the prophet is speaking about more than symbol. He's speaking about an unto us God who gives the peace in a person, his son, the Messiah, the anointed one who brings us comfort and joy. He offers and he invites. He doesn't jam peace down our throats or force it upon us. He brings the Prince of Peace to us in an act of love. Creation's king becoming a baby. The baby with so many names is given for us that we would know the love and peace of God and follow him, even into eternity. The beginning of Isaiah chapter 9 describes how the people were currently living and what will change. Turn back there to Isaiah, page 555, as I read the beginning of that chapter. Page 555. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken, as in the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us, a child is born, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulder, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall, continue, shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace, endless peace. For the throne of David and his kingdom he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time, 
onward and even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, I said yes to the yes that Jesus said for me on the cross when I was very young. I received Christ as an elementary age child in a teepee at Indian Village, a Forest Home Christian Conference Center. Since then, my faith has included many encounters which have resulted in growth in my knowledge and love of that Christ to whom I said yes. I had another personal encounter with the one Isaiah refers to in the prophecy a few years ago. This experience was more than knowledge about God. It was an experience with God. I've shared this story with a few of you, so forgive me if you've already heard it. Several summers ago, sensing a call from God to experience more of him, to further the discipline of silence I loved and practiced on retreats and quiet days, I planned an extended time in silence and found an opportunity to be led through an Ignatian eight-day retreat. This is a guided retreat spent in silence with the exception of one hour each day when a trained spiritual director guides you through some specific theme and biblical texts. I did this retreat on the island of Iona in Scotland. And as some of you know, this is a favorite place of mine. It's a small island, one mile wide and three miles long in the Hebrides off the west coast. And it's the place where St. Columba came from Ireland and brought Christianity to Scotland. The island has a rich history. It's a place where many people make spiritual pilgrimages and in Celtic spirituality is considered a thin place where the line between heaven and earth seems so thin that you could just reach your hand up and touch heaven. Iona is a thin place for me. I spent a total of 12 days in silence save for my one hour with a woman I had not met prior to the retreat. She resides on the island, which has a permanent population of about 120. The population swells, however, as hundreds of people come each day in the summer to make pilgrimages. You have to want to go to get to Iona. My journey that summer began by taking a plane from LAX, followed by a six-hour train from Glasgow, and a ferry from Oban, and a bus across the Isle of Mull, mainly on a one-lane highway, and another foot ferry to Iona. As I said, you have to want to go to get there. My daily sojourn to the cottage where Joan, the, my spiritual director for this retreat, lived, took me by sheep grazing, by high crosses which have stood for nearly a thousand years, and through an ancient nunnery ruin. From her cottage, from the window, I could see the brilliant color of the sea in the sound. I sat by a coal fire she had laid, and Joan led me in times of reflection and direction, steeped in scripture and in prayer. Joan would call me my dear little care, and her loving guidance reflected her years of walking closely with Jesus and being led by the Spirit. Spending times in new ways and going deeper with Jesus was a gift. Often she would suggest scripture for reflection and our time, as our time finished and I returned to silence 
until the next day meeting with her. Each afternoon as I left, Joan asked me to read from the stories of Jesus. She invited me to imaginative prayer and to put myself in those stories, to picture myself there, to smell and taste and listen to as if I was sitting in the story. I had done this with other scriptures and always found that God revealed something new or special. One particular afternoon, I decided to go sit on a bench by a cross in front of the sea. There are ancient crosses all over the island. The bench was situated among tall seagrass and the waves of the ocean were below a steep rock area just a few feet down from the bench. I couldn't see the rocks when I was sitting, but I knew they were there as I heard the waves crashing against them. To my right, a short distance away, was a sandy beach-like area used to access the water. Scotland can be quite cold in the summer. Only the very hardy take a swim, if it's particularly warm. So I went and I sat in silence while around me the island was abuzz with a ferry crossing the sound and pilgrims and visitors making their way into the village and up to the ancient abbey church. As I sat, I heard and saw a young family walking in my direction. There was a little boy and a younger girl uh, and a baby in her mother's arms. When the youngsters inquired where they were going, she said that they were going to have a picnic on the beach. I didn't notice as they walked towards me but apparently the little boy made his way down to the water and when called by his parents, he climbed the rocks up right in front of where I was sitting. And when he reached the top and was standing right in front of me, right in front of me, he yelled in a loud voice with his hands thrown up in the air, I survived! It was definitely an outside voice and his parents seemed a little embarrassed that he was shouting right in front of me as I apparently was looking quiet and prayerful. <laughs> they shushed him, but he yelled even louder. Again, with hands thrust upward, he said, I want the world to know I survived. I smiled and off they scurried. I watched as they settled on the sand by the water, hearing them at a distance, but soon returning to my own thoughts. Not long afterwards, the young boy and his father started walking up the hill from the beach, and the dad was telling the boy they were going to buy some drinks for their picnic lunch. The boy asked what they were having for lunch, and in a rich Scottish brogue, the father told him they were going to have ham and cheese sandwiches. Without missing a beat, the boy yelled loudly. They were nearly in front of me from where I was sitting. I hate ham! <laughs> the father shushed him again and told him to lower his voice, and the boy repeated louder still, raising his hands up again, but I hate ham, and I want the world to know! The father told him that the world didn't need to know that he hated ham and that he could eat the cheese, 
But the boy repeated again, I hate him and I do want the world to know. Now I laughed out loud so much for my silence. And as they returned, the decibel level of their conversation was much less. The family seemed to be enjoying the sea and sand, and it was lovely to watch them from where I sat. Well, the next day, Joan suggested I read the story from chapter four of the Gospel of Mark about Jesus' teaching, where the crowds were increasing and pressing in. So Jesus got in a boat on the lake in front of them and taught from the boat as the crowds kept coming. I took my Bible and journal and went to my favorite spot with a table and a bench overlooking the sound where the fishermen tied their boats night and near where the ferry traversed back and forth to the Isle of Mull. It was a place where I could write and pray and read the scriptures and be distracted by the color of the sound of God's creation. Rain or shine, each day I sat on that bench during my retreat. I read the story in Mark as a sign. And I began to look out at all the small boats and vessels and rafts that were tethered to buoys in the water right in front of me. I decided to use my imagination and put myself in the story by beginning to look at those boats and decide which one was Jesus in. I spent a good 30 minutes evaluating and looking at each boat. One was too small, I thought. Another had a motor on the back of it. Jesus wouldn't have had a motor. Another was too flashy and grand for Jesus. And I finally chose a small wooden rowboat with no oars visible. Jesus didn't need oars, I figured. And that had a faded blue stripe on the hull. I closed my eyes and envisioned Jesus sitting in the boat. And then I opened my eyes and imagined myself on the bench on the shore with the crowds of people pressing in and coming from every direction to hear Jesus speak. In my imagination, there was noise and lots of chatter when in fact, there was just five or six people scattered about, seated on the grassy area near where I sat on my bench. I imagined people in the story with small campfires and children running about. I imagined the smell of fish roasting on a fire and homemade bread being shared. I pictured people and what they would be wearing and I didn't have to imagine the color of the sea or the lake as I sat before the waters of Iona, deep turquoise and deeper green and blue waves lapping gently at the shoreline. In my imagination, I watched Jesus in the boat, sitting and apparently praying, but it was as real to me as I am standing here. Jesus was a good model. Pray before speaking. I was taking mental notes as I envisioned him. And then Jesus stood up and the boat began to rock and tip backwards. And I was so involved in this imaginative exercise, I literally sprang up from the bench. I was sure Jesus was going to fall in the water and I stood thinking I should help him. 
And in my imagination, I caught Jesus' eye and he gave me the I'm okay sign. Of course he's okay. He's Jesus. He walks on water. Jesus didn't need me to come and rescue him. Who do you think you are, Care Crawford? Jesus can take care of himself. You don't have to do that. Another lesson noted. I had to smile recalling times when I thought that I was solely responsible for taking care of someone else and times when I have not, perhaps, trusted God to do that work. Well, here I was sitting and seeing Jesus in the boat standing up and I knew he was going to start teaching like the Gospel of Mark said. And lo and behold, as clearly as I think I have ever heard God speak, I saw Jesus look straight at me, eyes locked, and in an outside and very loud voice, Jesus said, I love you, Care Crawford. I tell you, it was so real that I was sure that the few people who were scattered on the lawn in front of the sea that day must have heard it too. I looked around to see if any of them were looking out at Jesus. Did they hear what I heard? They were not looking. They had not heard. I felt a little embarrassed being called out by name by Jesus. And while I was glad he noticed me, my interior thought was, yes, I know you love me. You love everyone. And then in my imagination, but I tell you, I could see it. Jesus threw his hands up in the air and in a louder voice than before, he said, I love you, Care Crawford. And I want the world to know. Now, the skeptics among you might think me crazy or delusional, or maybe that I was enjoying some good Scottish whiskey at the time. (laughs) But I wasn't. I heard God speak. I heard the voice of Jesus speaking to me. And he wanted the world to know how much he loved me. That day and that experience changed my life. Now, I knew God loved me before, but I have never heard it in that way. I hadn't received the news that the unto me God sent unto me this message in quite this particular way. I knew God loved me. I knew Jesus was given unto me and unto us by God, and yet something in me shifted. And I was touched in a much deeper place in my soul than I have ever been before. What I didn't know was how that love, which forced me to embrace my belovedness in a personal way that day, would bring me to a place of peace in a time to come. I didn't know that during my time on Iona, my husband had seen a doctor for some pain he was suddenly having, which led to surgery to remove a cancerous cyst that only post-surgery did we know was contained. I had perfected before the art of worry, 
to the point that if my husband was 30 minutes late in the evening, I imagined him in a car accident on the 405. I have a good imagination. I had the ability to stress over things that were beyond my control. I came home from Iona, and after my encounter with this for us God, I walked with Steve through his health crisis in a completely different posture of peace, knowing Christ's love, where I once would have played out scenarios to their worst end. I felt a peace in knowing that we were loved by Jesus and all would be well. When the surgery had to be rescheduled, when we had to cross picket lines during a nurse's strike at the hospital the morning of the surgery, when I sat in the recovery rooms holding Steve's hand until he awakened, I knew God's peace reminding me that all shall be well. All is well. Even before we heard from the doctor or received the pathology report, and even before he had, even though he had to recover and recuperate, whatever we found out, whatever the prognosis was, good or bad, I was at peace and knew we could walk through this together and that all would be well. I knew it. I was confident of it. By receiving the gift of my belovedness in a new and deeper way that summer, I knew a peace that was different than I had known before. Do you know peace in your life? Always and everywhere, the mystery and wonder of God is present. God with us. A God who has bridged heaven and earth to reach us, to reveal his love for us. Do you know how loved you are? Do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know that Jesus will stand up in a boat and thrust his hands upward and shout at the top of his lungs, I love you, Pete. I love you, James. I love you, Susan. I love you, Gretchen. I want the world to know. And so, he so wanted the world to know God's love that he was obedient even to death on a cross. You may have heard the cute story of a Sunday school teacher who asks his class, where do you find Jesus? After giving a little time to think about the question, he was pleased with some of the answers. And then noticing one girl not paying much attention, the Sunday school teacher asked, what about you? Where do you find Christ? Lost in her daydream, it wasn't until the teacher walks in front of her and, says, and she says, oh, who, me? And he says, yes, and repeats the question. Where do you find Jesus? And her answer came immediately. Why? Is he lost? <laughs> now the truth is, in this season of Advent, Advent, one week before Christmas, with all the activity and shopping and traveling and card writing and baking, when we are caught up in the chaos of the season, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can get lost. 
When we listen to news and hear of a world filled with war and violence, it's difficult to see how Jesus could be the all-powerful God who acts in human history and is the embodiment of peace. But physical safety and political harmony doesn't reflect the kind of peace Isaiah is speaking about in verse 6. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's often used in reference to an appearance of calm and tranquility of individuals or groups or nations. The Greek word for peace is erene, which means unity and accord. The Apostle Paul uses erene to describe the object of the New Testament church. But the deeper, more fundamental meaning of peace is, as one commentator says, the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. Being peaceful or knowing peace doesn't mean your life is going to be easy or even stress-free. Jesus never promised easy. He only promised his presence, himself, Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, he told us to expect tribulation, John 16, 33. Expect trials, James 1, 2. But he also said that if we call on him, he would give us the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, Philippians 4. No matter what hardships we face, we can ask God for peace that comes in a person that comes from a powerful love from our unto us God. In chapter 62 in Isaiah, it says God delights in you. The unto us God has given us peace in a person. The unto us God keeps giving unto us. Have you lost that peace which Jesus brings? Where do you find Christ? He wants to be found by you. He wants to let you know his delight, his love. Will you miss it? Will you miss the gift of this season which will bring you such peace? Jesus is ready to be found. Will you receive the gift of the unto you God? Luke's gospel tells the version of the Christmas story, starting with the shepherds. They were the first to receive the good news after Jesus' birth. Why shepherds? Well, they are watchful. They pay attention as they try to protect their flock. Are you paying attention? Are you watchful? Will you listen for the shout of God? For Jesus to say, I love you, and I want the world to know. St. Teresa of Lisieux once said, the God who comes to us as an infant can only be mercy and love. She says, every time we see a nativity scene, God reveals mercy and love. And she defines mercy as the presence of peace. Peace given by an unto us God is the gift of the infant born in the stable and lying in a manger. For unto us a child is born. Unto us 
a son is given. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will never die. Where do you find Jesus? The Sunday school teacher asks. One little girl answered, after I get up in the morning and before I go down to breakfast, before all the craziness of the day, I pray for a few moments and that's where I find Jesus. Another child answers, when I see people giving to others who are in need, knowing that they can't get anything back, but just because they are generous and loving, that's where I find Jesus. Another says, according to teacher Mark Villano, at dinner, the dinner we have Christmas Day when all our family and friends get together and we eat and play games and laugh all night because it's Jesus' birthday. Maybe the question isn't so hard after all. Where do you find Jesus? I found him in a boat in my imagination. Yet it was so very real. You have a Christmas gift to open from an unto us God and it requires something of you. Are you ready to hear Jesus say I love you followed by your name? Can you imagine Jesus throwing up his hands and calling out that he wants the world to know that you are his beloved? I needed space and silence to hear that message loud and clear. What do you need this week leading up to Christmas? Are you willing to be still for just a while? Are you willing to say no to some activity or party so you can listen for God's whispers and shouts to you? The Spanish mystic Saint John of the Cross once said, where there is no love, put love and you will find love. And that's exactly what God did. For unto us, a child is born. The world needed love. And love was put in a manger. And there in a manger, we find Jesus. For unto you, my brothers and sisters, love is born. A son with many names, wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he has one name for you this day. Beloved, the ultimate Christmas gift any of us could receive is to be named God's beloved. But you have to unwrap it. You have to receive it and you have to wear it. Amen, let's pray. We thank you that you are an unto us God and for your amazing love. Call us to some quiet moments in this week ahead that we could unwrap the gift that you have given to us in a manger. Amen.